So good morning, y'all. Praise forever to the King of Kings. That's what that song said. Was that not just a moment? I mean, good gracious. Give the King of Kings a little love. Um, I want to, you know, my name is Ed Griffin-Hagan. I'm one of the pastors here on the staff at Church on the Trail. I want to welcome y'all here this morning. I want to welcome the people that are watching online as well. And if this is your first time here, uh, I want to get in your hands one of these little welcome kits that gives you kind of the DNA of our church family and who we are. And so if this is your first time here, if it's your second time here and we've never put one of these in your hands, uh, Elliot Long is on this side and Susan Griffinhagen is on that side. Um, and so if you raise your hand, let them know and they'll get one of these in, in your hands as well. If this is your first time here or if you just have any prayer concerns, in the seat back in front of you is one of these little Get Connected cards and if you would fill that out let us know that you're here we're not going to tackle you in the parking lot and we're not going to show up at your house with apple pie we just want to know that you were here Um, and if you have a prayer concern fill it out let us know drop that in the offering bucket or give it to the folks at the connections desk because we want to pray for you and your family or whatever it is that you need also um, in case you didn't know thanksgiving is uh, is this thursday and in our house, the more important day is the day after Thanksgiving, I guess, Black Friday. But no, just kidding. Uh, Thanksgiving is Thursday, and I just want to tell y'all, spend some time, some good time with your family. Be thankful for, uh, for what we have. Be thankful for the way, even in the trouble and in the despair that can be in our lives sometimes, the Lord is by our side all the time. So just be thankful. Be thankful for that. Um, so we are in week four of this thing that we have called uh, creed. Creed. We're looking at the truth claims that underlie, that are foundational, that stand beneath the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is not Scripture. The Apostles' Creed lays out kind of what it is, if you call yourself a Christian, what it is, those core beliefs. Last week we walked through, if you uh, were not here last week, I would very much encourage you to go back and watch uh, last week's service. It was a powerful, powerful day. We had 18 people come up kneeling at the cross last week. It was a powerful, powerful day. So if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and watch that, listen to that message, listen to the worship. Anyway, so we talked about why it is that Jesus died on that cross, and then we talked about what was accomplished on that cross, what took place on that cross, what happened on that cross. So I believe... The creed says, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell on the third day. He rose again. So today, we are going to look at what the Bible says, what happened in the few days after he was taken down, uh, physically dead, taken down off that old rugged cross. So, all four Gospels record what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, first four books of the New Testament, they all record what happened next. Matthew's is the shortest. Matthew wrote, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. 
and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and he went away. So Christ's body was prepared for burial. He was wrapped in a, in a linen shroud. He was put in a cave and a stone was rolled in or rolled across that to seal the cave up. There is really no disagreement among scholars regardless of their religious background. No disagreement uh, on whether or not he was put in the tomb. So the creed said he was buried. He was buried. The creed goes on to say he descended into hell. And that is a tough, tough phrase to read in the English. There are three or four different takes on that, on that component. But remember, the Apostles' Creed is not the Bible, okay? And there's three or four different takes on that little phrase, he descended into hell. And I am not going to take up the time today to go through all of those three or three or four. I'm going to tell you what I believe. And I could be wrong. I'm not wrong, but I could be wrong. I want to tell you where I fall on this issue of when the creed says he descended into hell. First of all, that phrase is a late addition to the creed. It's based on one interpretation of 1 Peter 3.19, and it's first mentioned by a guy named Rufinus in the late 4th century, uh, and it doesn't appear in any other versions of the creed until AD 650, two or 300 years later. Rufinus was a monk. He was a 4th century monk. He was a historian. He was a theologian. And he himself notes that that phrase, he descended into hell, was not in the original old Roman creed that was the first uh, form of the Apostles' Creed. Even though he, Rufinus, he included it in the creed in his own local church. But he also makes it clear that, that, that he himself did not believe that Christ literally descended into hell as we understand hell. Christ did not go into the middle of the torment. Christ, that would be outside of God's nature. So we know that. Christ did not go literally into the, the burning fires of hell. The Greek form uh, of the creed, written in Greek, the word that is used that in English is translated hell is the word Hades. And by the New Testament times, and this is, you know, two or three or four hundred years later, by New Testament times, that word Hades most often meant the grave. He descended into the grave. He was buried. That's what that, that's really what that means. What that means, so a better translation is just simply, he descended into the grave. And so that's where I fall on that. I think that makes the most logical sense. What would Christ do? Would he go down, because I've read this, that he went down and he witnessed to the people in hell. I've read somebody said that. Well, that makes no sense. They're already dead. They're in hell. There's not all these second chances, right? So if there's not all these second chances, what's the point of him going down there to stick his tongue out at him and say, look what you could have had? That would be outside of God's character as well. I have heard, and I told you all I wasn't going to do this, but I read that he went down and he gathered up the Old Testament saints that they were in some temporary holding tank or something and he took them to heaven well no that that's not right either because here's the deal purgatory and some of you have heard that purgatory doesn't exist that there's not some temporary place that we go until we're called up and that's just not the way that it works so the most logical answer is in the creed that he descended into the grave so last week uh, at some point I said in the message that what started in the garden began to reach its peak at the cross. It began to reach its peak as Christ hung on that cross. And it did. But there was more to come 
from the Lord that first Easter weekend. You remember what Jesus said as he's, as he's dying on the cross. He said, it is finished. We asked last week, what was finished? He said it was finished. Well, what was it that was finished? His redemptive work was finished. His being made the sin offering, the final chata'ah, if you remember that in Hebrew. Y'all say that with me again. Chata'ah, one, two, three, chata'ah. On the third day, he rose again. The creed says on the third day, he rose again. That's what the creed says we believe. If you're a Christ follower, you need to believe that on the third day, he rose again. That he for real ran out of that grave the way that, I love that song, the way that song said he ran out of the grave. He was dead, really dead, heart stopped beating, he was physically dead, and then he got back alive and he ran out of that grave. So that is a Christ follower, that's what we believe. Y'all, on, on Wednesday night, January the 17th, 2001, I said, told my parents that I'd gotten saved, and my mom says to me, do you actually believe that, that he came back to life? And my answer was, yeah, mama, that's a pretty big part of the whole Christian equation. And she says, but you're smarter than that, Edward. You know, I heard a story um, about a man who went to Israel on vacation, and he went to Israel on vacation with his wife and his very difficult-to-deal-with mother-in-law. And sadly, sadly, while they were on this trip, his mother-in-law <clears throat> had a heart attack and passed away. And so he's trying to figure out what to do with his mother-in-law's body. And the funeral home people in uh, Tel Aviv said to the man, well, we can ship her home to Pennsylvania. That would be about 5000 bucks. But you might consider burying her here in Israel because we can do that for about 150 bucks." And the man thought about it, and he's sitting there, and he's like, well, I don't know what to do. He's sitting there thinking about it, and he says, he says, I think I'm just going to go ahead and ship her back to the States. And the funeral director dude says to him, Sir, did you hear what I said? It's going to, you know, you could bury her in the Holy Land for $150. Why would you want to spend 5000 bucks to ship her back to the States? And the man said to the funeral home guy, Well, you know what? A long time ago, a man was buried here, and three days later, he rose from the dead, and I just cannot take that chance. <laughs> so, <laughs> back to our, our regularly scheduled program. Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, verse 6. Says, uh, says he, that got me all kind of off. <laughs> Matthew 28, 6 says, He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Mark chapter 16 says, And he, he being an angel, uh, he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. John chapter 20, Peter and John go to the tomb, and they find it empty. And then in Luke chapter 24, in verse 2, it says, they, they being the women, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. He is not here, but is risen. So all the gospel writers proclaim that the tomb is empty. Y'all, the tomb was empty. Again, nearly all theologians, all scholars, all academics across all sort of religious uh, backgrounds, any religion. Hindu, Buddhist, Jewish, whatever, they all really agree that the tomb was empty. But how the tomb got empty is where they get sideways. How the tomb got empty is kind of where they part ways. With that said, and maybe at the risk of disappointing y'all today, I'm not going to go through the extremely 
convincing uh, proofs of Christ's resurrection. As much as I would love to stand up here and just destroy the arguments of the haters, you're going to have to wait. And, and here's what they, they i got to say this, though. They usually say one of about three things. And I'm talking about the people that deny uh, that the tomb is empty. Or even the people that will accept what, that the tomb is empty, but they come up with these different answers. And I'm just going to do this for a minute or we'll be here for two hours. Number one, they say that he really didn't die. That's called the swoon theory, that he really didn't die. That's an absurd argument. April 12th next year, we'll go through that argument on Easter. But they say that he really didn't die. Number two, they say maybe that somebody stole the body. Somebody stole the body. That's an absurd answer too, but some people, they say that. Number three, they, they would say that his disciples and all the witnesses that saw the risen Christ had one big great mass hallucination all together at the same time. That's, an even, that's probably the most absurd um, explanation. But the best evidence points otherwise. The best evidence, it points otherwise. But again, April 12th, next year, Easter, we'll walk through that. For today's purposes, I want to preface this this whole message with that we're going to believe, for the purpose of this message, we're going to believe up front that he really was dead and that he really walked out of the grave really alive. So today I want to look at what happened next. For the most part, what happened next according to Luke's gospel. Luke ends the account at the tomb with Peter running into the tomb, looking in, Seeing it empty, in verse 12, he says that Peter, Peter said, Luke says that Peter went home marveling at what had happened. He looked inside, the tomb was empty, he went home marveling at what had happened. Immediately after that, verse 13, Luke gives us two stories about what was going on with Jesus' guys, what was going on with his 11, because you know by now he had 11 disciples because Judas had hung himself. So what was going on with his 11 guys and all the other disciples? And we're going to look at the first story that he gives us. And so it starts in verse 13. The text says, Luke uh, 24:13. It says, that very day, two of them, two of who? Two of, of his disciples were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They, the two guys, eyes were kept from recognizing Christ. And he said to them, he, Christ, said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. 
And he said to them, he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, what that means is the whole Old Testament. Beginning with Moses is beginning with Genesis. The Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the, the first five books that Moses wrote. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now well, uh, far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he taught us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told, they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. A few things here, and I know that was a lot of scripture, but that is an, a, it's critical, uh, a critical passage of scripture. The two folks, they're on their way to Emmaus. I believe that these guys were scared. I believe they were sad. I believe they were discouraged. And, and there's a few reasons why I believe that. Number one, they were putting as much distance between themselves and Jerusalem where it all had happened as they could. They were putting distance between them. The text says they were on a seven-mile walk away from the city. And so it seems that they did not want to be associated with the guy that just got hung on the cross. Why do you think that is? Because they were scared. They were scared that they were going to end up on a cross. If they were associated with him, they, they were scared that the Romans, uh, the, by the Jews' insistence, were going to crucify them as well. And so Jesus said to them, Now, they didn't know it was him, and I don't know how, because some of you probably think, Well, how could they not know that it was him? I don't know. I don't know. Verse 16 says they didn't know that it was him, so I'm going to go with they didn't know that it was him. You know, what, what are y'all talking about, Jesus says to them on that road. And then verse 18, Luke tells us that they stood still looking sad. And then they tell him everything that had just happened concerning Jesus of Nazareth and how he was killed. Not even realizing, y'all, that they were talking to Jesus of Nazareth when they said that. And they say something really interesting in verse 21. They say, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And the word that Luke uses here to redeem, it's lutro. And that word has a strong Old Testament background. And that, that, that word looks back to the Exodus story of God setting Israel free from Egypt, redeeming them out of Egypt. And the disciples, you got to understand, for three years, they walked with him, they hung out with him, 24-7, 365 for three years. And they saw Jesus as the one who would bring a new exodus, sort of, a new exodus and free Israel, free the Jews from the rule of Rome. They looked for him to, to be an earthly king, to kick Rome's tail out of Israel. But instead, he proved to be something 
way more than that. To be the redeemer who freed them from sin and death. But at this point, those two guys on that road, they had no earthly idea of this. We had hoped, they said. We had hoped. The tense of that verb is looking backwards. It's in the past. We had hoped that he would free Israel. But that hope was gone. They're, they're running away from Jerusalem. The hope was gone. Hopeless is what they were. And y'all, it is a bad thing when hope is lost. For us today, our hope is not in tech. Our hope is not in art, some artificial intelligence. Our hope is not in human solutions. Our hope is not in, in politicians. Thank God for that. All of this will let you down and will disappoint you. Our hope is not in preachers. We will let you down. We will. Listen, if you knew me as well as I know me, you probably wouldn't even stay and listen to the rest of the message. You'd know that I will disappoint. Human beings will disappoint. But before you get up and run out, you've got to know this too, that I bet if I knew you as well as you know you, the same is true. That rhymed. All three of those words rhymed. Y'all, our hope is not in any of that stuff. Our hope is not in people. It's not. Our hope is not in stuff. Our hope is in the Lord. Hope is the difference. Hope is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. I asked my parents one time too, what do you think is going to happen when you die? And they said, I don't care, I'll be dead. That is so hopeless. Most of the world believes in annihilationism, which means when you die, that's it. That is absolute, pure hopelessness. And, and, and hope, or a lack of hope, can have super profound impacts on us. Some years ago in New England, a hydroelectric dam is being built across this valley. <clears throat> and the people in the small town that was in the valley um, were being relocated because when, the, uh, uh, when, when they built the dam, the valley was going to end up being submerged. So during the time that they announced, between the time that they announced that the dam was being built and the time that it was actually built, the buildings in this quaint little, really hallmark little village, uh, which had been kept up super very, very nicely, the, the, most of those buildings fell into shambles. Instead of a being, being a cute, quaint little town, it became an eyesore. Well, why did that happen? It's simple why that happened. One of the residents said, wherever there, there is no hope in the future, there's no work in the present. Y'all, when hope is gone, things decay. When hope is gone from your life, your life will decay. And so I'm going to ask you, as we sit here, all of us sit here today, has something happened in your life that's caused you to think or to feel hopeless? Maybe you walked in here this morning discouraged. Maybe life hasn't gone quite the way that you planned or quite the way that you thought it was going to go. You were hoping you'd be married by now, but actually you're single. You were hoping your marriage would be strong, but, but in fact it's unraveling. Maybe for some it has even fallen apart. You were hoping that your business by now would be jamming, but it's not. Maybe you lost a loved one unexpectedly. You spent last year Thanksgiving with them, and this Thursday they're not going to be there. Maybe the, and that made it this huge hole in your life. Maybe there's some illness that you're going through. Maybe your whole life you have been extremely healthy, but that's kind of fallen apart too. And you come here today without hope. So again, Luke gives us this oddish detail in verse 16, that Jesus is traveling incognito. 
their eyes were kept from recognizing him. But the king of kings was walking right beside them for that seven-mile sort of journey. And they didn't even realize it. And me and you can be so like that sometimes. Y'all, he is with us all the time. On a sunny day or on a cloudy day, on a mount, in a mountaintop moment, or, or, or in the pit of the valley times. He was in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. Go read Daniel chapter 3. The fourth guy in the fire with them was the Lord himself. He was with them in the fire. And he will be with you in the fire if you are a Christian. He walks through our life with us. But he's not a genie in the bottle that you can just rub the bottle and he'll come out and help you and then you can put him away for all the rest of the days. And then you just pull him out, rub the bottle, and get him just when you need him. But he is faithful. Even when we're not, he is. The crazy thing is for these two guys on this road, they were headed in the wrong direction. They should have been in Jerusalem. They're heading away from Jerusalem. They should have been in Jerusalem with the other disciples, or at least gone to Galilee where Jesus told them to meet him. But they were putting a bunch of distance between themselves and the cross. And here's what we often do when we're down, when we're discouraged, when we are in despair, when we are, are, are in our sin, we run. It's nuts, y'all. We do the opposite of what we ought to do. Those are the very times when we need to turn in. It's the times that we need to lean in to the Lord. We need to go to Him in our pain. We need to, we need to go to Him in our despair. Take your troubles to Him. Don't run away from Him. Run towards Him. Don't run away from Him. Run towards Him. He wants to be there with you in all of those times, on the mountain or in the valley. And then here comes the devil, right? Here comes the devil. And he's shrewd. And he's cunning. And you know, he hates your guts. And he would just as soon slit your throat if he could. He comes what? To steal, kill, and destroy. That is, what, that is his mission. And he will kill you if he can. And he'll whisper in your ear, Hey man, come here for a second. I know you're doing this whole little Christian thing now, and you really are doing so well, but I thought you may want to want to just have a little extra fun. You had a tough day at work. You worked hard today. You deserve a break. Let me just give you a little bit of this. Let me just give you a little bit of that. You're going to love it, and I won't tell anybody about it if you won't. Did God really say not to do that? That's what he's going to whisper in your ear. And we're so dumb, we take the bait. And then when we, the moment we fall, he jumps right back up in our ear and he says, you miserable hypocrite. Who do you think you are? You call yourself a Christian? What a joke. What a joke. Don't you even think about showing your ugly face in church. Don't you dare open up that Bible. It's not for you. You're not worthy to read that Bible. Surely you don't think you have a right to pray. He's not going to listen to anything that you say. He doesn't answer your prayers. You're not good enough to pray. You're not worthy. And y'all, we buy into those lies. And we're like, I know, man, I can't talk to God right now. I can't go to church. I can't read my Bible. I'm not good enough. I'll talk and I'll go and I'll read as soon as I get myself cleaned up. I'm just, as soon as I get good enough, then I'll go to church somewhere. 
the truth is, that is the exact time that you got to get with other believers. It's the exact time that you have got to turn to him. Turn to him and lean into him. The devil is a liar. He will lie to you every time. Y'all don't buy into those lies. Go to the Lord and find forgiveness. Go to the Lord and find healing. Go to the Lord and find restoration. Go to the Lord and find reconciliation. Go to the Lord and find redemption. That is what he does. And that is what he wants to do. And so these two guys on this dusty road to Emmaus, they're moving away from the cross when they should have been running to the cross. The devil will always try to separate you from the cross. He will always drag your past up and tell you that that's the way it's always going to be. You're a drunk, you'll always be a drunk. You're an adulterer, you'll always be an adulterer. Whatever it is, he is always, and I mean he's always, going to get up in your ear and tell you that that is who you are, that that is what defines you, that that is your identity. He is a liar. And what he had been whispering in these two guys on that road ear, what he had been whispering in their ears is that Jesus was dead. And all of their hopes that they had died with him. So the devil will always try to separate you from the cross. But because Jesus lives, we have the Holy Spirit. Because he lives, we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's role is to always drive us to the cross, to always push us to the cross. Whatever the devil is doing and up to, the Holy Spirit is doing and up to the very opposite of that. And so then in verse 27, it says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Can you imagine the talk that they had? I wish so bad that the scriptures put in all of what they talked about on that road. Seven mile walk. It probably took them two or three hours. Two or three hours of hearing the dude that wrote the book explain the book to them. I wonder like what he said. I wonder if he said things to them like, Hey guys, remember Psalm 22? Y'all should go read Psalm 22. But remember he says them, remember Psalm 22 where the psalmist says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he says, They have pierced my hands and my feet. He may have said to them, That was talking about my crucifixion, guys. And by the way, Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before crucifixion was even a form of capital punishment. Maybe he took them to Isaiah 53. And he said, Hey, remember the passage where Isaiah says, And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all? Guys, that was talking about me. He was pierced for our transgressions. That was me, you guys. He was talking about me. All of it was pointing to me. I can only imagine the conversation that they had for those two or three hours. And it still hadn't clicked with them that the guy that they were walking with was Jesus. And I'm sure they're thinking, like, who is this guy? But, man, he really, really knows his Bible. And we like him. And he's digging into the Scriptures with them. And he's explaining it to them. And he's interpreting it for them. And they could just listen all day. Like, I could listen to Ravi Zacharias all day long. Anybody listen to Ravi Zacharias? Anybody ever even heard of Ravi Zacharias? Thank you, sir. R-Z-I-M Ministries. He is an incredible teacher. I could listen to him all day. My wife Susan, Tony Evans. I think she'd leave me for Tony Evans. 24-7, man, Tony Evans. If I'm at home when she's getting ready in the morning, his podcast is blaring out all over our house. 
But this is the Lord of lords. The king of kings himself is walking and teaching them on that road. And they still don't even know it. Well, then they get to where they're going. And verse 31 tells us that their eyes were opened and they recognized the Lord. Sadness turns to joy. Hopeless turns to hopeful. Discouragement becomes encouragement. Verse 32. And you can see this in in your mind's eye. These guys looking at each other after they realize who he is. Yeah, that's why our hearts were on fire. That's why our hearts were burning when he was explaining the scriptures to us. Finally, we get it. Finally, we can see that the scripture all points to Jesus from page one until the end. Y'all, it is all about Jesus Christ. It is all about him. And so my encouragement to you, dig into the Bible. It is one huge, big revelation of the Christ. When you're discouraged, when you're disappointed, when you're sad, when you're tempted, grab the Bible and dig in and pray that the Holy Spirit will illuminate the text for you. And He will. This book is the primary way today that God communicates with His people. He communicates through His Word. So now these two guys are on fire. The text says that they immediately in that hour turn around, they head back to Jerusalem. They get to Jerusalem, they find the eleven. And these others, the text says, and the others. Don't know how many others there were. I would imagine there was a bunch. And they say in verse 34, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Simon is Peter. Let me tell you about Peter. Peter is the poster child for the change that the truth of the resurrection can make. Because he lives, Peter's a different guy. For Peter, the resurrection meant that his past no longer defined him. His past no longer defined him. Peter felt like he had let Jesus down so much that his relationship with him was beyond repair. You ever felt like you have let God down so much that your relationship with him is beyond repair? If you've ever felt that way, raise your hand. That is an absolute lie from hell. That is the devil getting up in your ear. There's nothing you can do to earn it, and there's nothing that you can do to unearn it, if that's the right word. So Peter had even just denied in that last day or so. He had denied even knowing Jesus three different times. He just felt like a, a failure. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, here's what Peter said. Now this is on the other side of the resurrection when 1 Peter was written. He said, through the resurrection, we are born again into a living hope that's kept in heaven for us. That's in 1 Peter chapter 1. There are two things in there that totally change how you see yourself, how you ought to see yourself. Born again and living hope. Let me start with living hope. Your hope is in whatever you believe gains you acceptance before God. And I'm telling you that most people on the planet believe that God's acceptance of them is based on how good they are or how well they keep the rules of their, quote, religion. And you may think that works just fine until you fail, like Peter. And then you start wondering how good is good enough. I spent the first 37 years of my life wondering how good is good enough. Did I meet the bar today? Oh, no, I didn't meet the bar yesterday. That is also a lie from hell. The gospel is that Christ 
is good enough. That Christ earned our acceptance in our place. He's the one that paid the penalty for our sin. And the resurrection is God's declaration that He has accepted Jesus' payment on our behalf. And now Jesus stands alive by the throne testifying to that. That's why Peter says, I have a living hope that is kept in heaven for me in 1 Peter. It's safe. My living hope is safe. And the living Christ stands there as my acceptance and your acceptance into heaven. Whenever an accusation is brought against me, I do something stupid, I fall into sin, I do something that ought to cause me to be rejected from God's presence, and Jesus says, bro, I got it. The comfort in knowing that He is standing there saying, bro, I got it. I done paid for it. It's all taken care of. There is ridiculous comfort in that thought. Most people in our culture believe that all religions teach the same thing. And all religions and religious traditions lead to the same place. They don't, y'all. They don't. Our hope is not in how good we live, but in the Christ that took the hit for us. So in the resurrection, in the resurrection, I now have a living hope that's no longer based on me and thank God it's not based on me Peter says in the resurrection I'm born again I'm a new creation which means that God has started this process of a new life in me the power of the resurrection turned Peter who was a Jesus denying coward into Peter the rock who was the leader of the early church and that same power that same Holy Spirit is at work in your life if you are a believer. In this room right now, I guarantee it that there are stories of people with pasts filled with the most tragic mistakes. Big mistakes and little mistakes. You said things to your dad that you can never take back. You emailed things to your dad that you can never take back. You spoke crazy hurtful things to your children. You were on drugs. You were unfaithful to your spouse. You kicked out of school. You spent time in jail. You were filled with bitterness and hate and racism. But God changed you. You didn't change yourself. God changed you. And not because, not because you were a decent person who deserved a second chance. No. But because you were dead and He made you alive. You were dead in your trespasses, Paul says in Ephesians. And you were made alive in Christ. Not that you were a decent person who deserves a second chance. But because you were dead and now you were made alive. And so as you sit here today, have you bought into the lie that you're too jacked up for God to have anything to do with you? Don't buy that lie. Have you bought into the lie that your mistakes are too much? They're too big. That the pain that you may have caused is too bad. That the addiction is just too strong. Look, man, God breathed life into a dead body. God breathed courage into a cowardly Peter. Paul, uh, God breathed love into a murderous Paul. When you believe, He will breathe new life into you. And so Peter realized that his past did not define him. Peter realized that his past was not his identity. 
you need to realize that your past does not define you. You need to realize that your identity is not in any crap that you did in your past. When you believe, when I say yes to the Lord, my identity moves from anything that has anything to do with me. My identity is in Christ because He is standing in my stead. So your past, I don't care what you did in your past. The Lord doesn't care what you did in your past. Do not let that define you. Say yes to Him, and then your, your, your identity is in Him. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, but on the third day, He rose again. And because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all my fear is gone. Because He lives, I know He holds the future. Because Jesus lives, my life is now worth living. Yours is too. Because He lives, I will too forever.